welcome to the show today. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, whenever, wherever you're listening. Uh, this is Trickle Up Politics. This is Levon and Sean. Say hello, hi. hello. <laughs> so today we're going to talk, uh, we're going to kind of tie the ends together with the war on drugs. We're going to talk a little bit about the Sackler family and um, what to do with steps to eradicate the uh, drug war <laughs> or end the drug war. Um, but uh, to open the show, so a little bit of uh, craziness over this last week, of course, our president was uh, impeached again. Um, and we have, uh, as Pete Carroll likes to say, it's the day before the day before uh, inauguration. So this is our last uh, episode of the uh, Trump presidency. Thank <laughs> God. Um, it is also uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And I have a little quote. We both have a little you know, quote from him or related to him prepared. So I'll go first here. This is by Bernice King, his daughter. She uh, tweeted out today saying, Dear politicians and political influencers, when you tweet about my father's birthday, remember he was that he was resolute about eradicating racism, poverty, and militarism. Encourage and enact policies that reflect your birthday sentiments. Yeah, yeah. So, so beautifully put. Um, you know, I going through college and studying ethnic studies and, and really focusing on social movements. Uh, MLK was, of course, um, a, a huge influence on, on me, um, uh, the nonviolent movement itself uh, was a huge influence on me. I am still a huge believer uh, in the foundations that uh, individuals like Gandhi and MLK uh, put out there for us in, in terms of showing us that the best way, the best tools we have to fight injustice, especially of those who hold power over us is through nonviolence. And, you know, um, that is something that we just have to hold dear, uh, especially as we move through a, a time that we're, we're still fighting these same fights. And, you know, the, the quote you just had ties in really well to one of uh, the quotes that I love from Martin Luther King, uh, which is our only hope today lies in our ability to recapture the revolutionary spirit and go out into a sometimes hostile world declaring eternal hostility to poverty, racism, and militarism. And this is just so true today um, and, and so needed today. So uh, a great man. And I, I'm glad that we get to, to start off by talking about him. Yes, absolutely. And both those quotes will tie right in uh, with what we're speaking about today. And, and like you said, speak right directly to the issues presenting us now in, in particular. And Remembering the, those guiding principles of nonviolent action and, um, and standing up. 
Um, so, Sean, anything else before we get started? Uh, you know, I have lots of lots of thoughts still around uh, the insurrection, the the lack of action from our political leaders, and um, grateful that the the House moved forward uh, with impeachment. Um, I, I find it to be a joke that the Republican Party uh, is still standing up for this man. Um, who, who made a direct call to action uh, of these insurrectionists, told them to take this action, um, and yet the Republican Party just still stands by um, with complete arrogance about the fact that they will just continue on uh, business as usual. And, and it's, you know, it's maddening to me to see polls coming out showing that only 8% of the Republican Party, uh, or those who identify as Republican at least, uh, support the impeachment uh, of this president. Uh, it just sickening to me um, and, and really disappointing in terms of where we're at. Yeah. Yeah, and this seems like there's even more to break down yeah, each passing day, it seems like with that. Um, yeah, and you know, I was thinking about that myself, reflecting on that, and you know, I like to say they will be judged in the afterlife, these Republicans, as they want to, you know, as they put it, but it'll be the afterlife in the sense of generations that generation, uh, a generation from now and in the future, will they'll look back on these moments and they will judge them, right? Yeah. So, yeah, we don't we don't celebrate McCarthy Day in the U.S., right? We right. celebrate MLK Day uh, in the mm -hmm. U.S. I mean, uh, history has always, at least U.S. history, has always fallen to mm -hmm. the side of justice. That long arch uh, of justice. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, you know, it, it, he he's correct. But man, uh, I, I did not realize how correct he was in terms of the length of time that it would take us to get to the mountaintop. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I start to doubt that it's even possible in my lifetime uh, to get to the mountaintop with where we're at. But I, I do agree with you that history will look back on yet another period of the American story, yet another chapter that is polluted with racism and hatred um, and inequity in wealth, huge wealth disparity um, and continued militarization. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you just have to look at MLK and be like, this man knew it. It was, it was what was prevalent in his time. It's what's prevalent in our time. And when are we going to be students of history and get the fucking point? Mm -hmm. uh, I just, uh, and when are we going to see the people who continue to stand for the same principles that ensure that those things live 
in our society. And right now, that is the Republican Party. It hasn't always been, right? The party of Lincoln uh, had a different story to tell. Mm -hmm. But the Republican Party today Mm -hmm. owns it's even poverty, racism, and militarism. Even a far cry from Dwight D. Eisenhower. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 A, a little more modern. Yeah, a little bit more modern. Yes. But uh, yes. Um, and well, I mean, when you think about a lot of those issues there um, that you kind of underpin, go into what we're talking about with uh, the war on drugs, part two. <laughs> um, again, I don't think two parts really does it justice but that's what we're our focus is here um so the sackler family from what i read from what i kind of gathered here is a you know kind of a a brief overview i guess um from what i understand so they own purdue purdue makes highly addictive oxycontin they highly addictive what are you talking about levon highly (laughs) addictive yeah i know right um, by those, uh, you know, manipulated studies to show that it's uh, not highly addictive. <laughs> manipulated studies. <laughs> Get this man out of here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that has contributed to the opioid crisis, which has killed many um, in the lower and working class. Um, but they, what they do, it's called uh, reputation laundering as Rob Reich. Um, a Stanford U ethics professor puts it. So they are not ultimately responsible. They kind of have that shell as I understand. Yeah. I, you know, I think this is the same protection that so many corporations are able to afford to those who lie, cheat and steal from the American people. Uh, the Sacklers just happen to be one of uh, the saddest and most deadly of the stories uh, that you can hear in terms of um, the way they manipulated uh, their consumers uh, and how they benefited from that. Mm-hmm. They, they took one study, one study that was done in hospital on individuals using Oxycontin for a very, not even Oxycontin, excuse me, using opioids for a very short period of time. And they manipulated that single study uh, related to, to long acting opioids. They manipulated that study into a way to tell doctors that this was a non-habit forming opioid, which which is what people have been looking for since we figured out opioids, right? Like since people figured out that opioids work for pain, but are highly addictive, this has been what everyone wants is a non-addictive opioid. Mm -hmm. And and that's what they sold it as. And it was complete BS. Mm -hmm. They, they hired scores of pharmaceutical reps to go into the doctor's offices and give them freebies. They paid for trips that could then be written off as educational because they would bring doctors in. 
they completely changed the way individuals in healthcare were sold a good. Mm-hmm. And all they did was, was become the greatest drug lords in U.S. history. Mm. They made billions of dollars and racked up a death toll that no dealer in the U.S. will ever come close to. Mm-hmm. And that legacy still continues mm-hmm. because even though their drug is now known for what it really is, an addictive killer, the, the lasting legacy of that is a heroin epidemic that rages on today mm-hmm. uh, and continues to kill people and is now a fentanyl epidemic that is killing even more people all of which the Sackler family have to own. And what, what has happened to them? Mm-hmm. Right. What have we done in response to this? Right. Well, that's what I, you know, kind of allude to there with, with uh, the shell, right. Is that the, like this ethics professor kind of lays out there is this um, reputation laundering, which is an interesting uh, term of um you know we are not ultimately responsible for this it is our our corporation which they and then they can you know point to those studies it sounds like uh and be like no they're the ones that did the study we're you know right they hide they hide behind a limited liability corporation uh, which brings up a a different topic altogether which is (laughs) you know, why do we allow individuals um, the right to have a corporation? And when they do have a corporation, what do they owe us for giving them that right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because we afford individuals um, the ability to avoid taxing them the same way, to avoid the liability of ownership in a way uh, that's different than somebody who's a sole proprietor these individuals because they can hide behind their corporation purdue pharma which was a joke before oxycontin by the way they can hide behind that corporation and they end up losing a few million dollars in the end out of their own pockets most of the money doesn't even come out of their own pocket because it's coming out of the corporation So they lose a few million dollars, maybe a little bit of reputation, while an individual who's actively using illicit Oxycontin on the street, which they pushed out there, is doing more time and is bankrupt Mm -hmm. because of their behavior. Mm -hmm. And so the system allows this rich motherfucker to sit behind their ivory tower and have no repercussions that that are really in the end going to impact their life while they've completely destroyed the lives of others. And nobody wants to talk about this, Mm -hmm. right? Nobody wants to to have the conversation of what horrible people they are. Well, it's the elephant in the room, right? It's just like with these, with with a lot of, uh, is the kind of the same old story with money and politics is the same sad story of, the you know working people being uh, exploit exploited um 
and of course in this case when it comes to uh the opioid <laughs> epidemic uh that is the working class the poor class is the brunt of the blast or it gets the brunt of the blast and so what so in after making out all this like what would you say then should happen to them because we have we have all these protections for uh big money in politics right uh legalized bribe there's legalized bribery right so in this system what, what what can and should be done then i think the the first thing i'll say here is that they need to be treated like El Chapo. Mm-hmm. They need to be treated like Pablo Escobar because that's what they are. And, and they have used the United States corporate structure to protect themselves. But they're, they're no better than those two men who we have vilified for, mm-hmm. for good reason. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. not trying to say those are good men. Right. I'm saying that we should treat the Sacklers as the evil motherfuckers they are, mm. equivalent to other drug lords of our generation. Mm-hmm. And we all know how El Chapo and Pablo Escobar have been treated. Right. We we sent the U.S. government to eradicate mm-hmm. both of those people. Right? Mm-hmm. Manhunts. We killed hundreds, if not thousands, of individuals in Latin America yeah. chasing Pablo Escobar, right? I mean, let's be honest. The Sacklers, you know, live in New York, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and there's still have uh, three, endowments, right? Yeah, there's three three main families or something like that. And that's just so funny. Like the the imagery that you're kind of painting there is, you know, El Chapo and and you know, um, this bo- you know boogeyman like this this. Uh, he, you know, he has these suits and everything is gun and a pistol. He's come to get you, you know, then you, it's like, then you like, you actually literally look up a picture of the Sackler family here. They all done up in their, you know, just the nines and everything like that, going to a, a ball, you know, and, and that's the thing is that imagery, like, like we were saying is it's opulence. Um, what's that? It's opulence. Right. right? right. One thing all of them shared was this image of opulence. That's what all of them wanted. That's what all of them flaunted, right? There's absolute similarity in all of this. The only thing the Sacklers had was one, they're white, and two, they had a the protection of a corporation behind them. Yep. They had drug runners, they had sellers. I mean, every single one of those paid pharma reps that were going in and kissing the doc's asses. That's a that's a low level drug dealer to to someone like Pablo Escobar. Yeah, the middleman. Right? Yeah, the vassal. And and vassal those vassal. distributing this drug in mass quantities. 
to pharmacies across the United States. Yeah, okay. They were hiding behind corporations as well. But many of those corporations, many of the people who were distributing this drug for Purdue Pharma have gone down as well because of their practices. So this was a well-oiled machine Mm -hmm. and it was a cartel. Mm -hmm. They just use the American system to protect themselves from, from what comes to those who actually are drug lords in other countries, mm-hmm. right? That's the only difference. Mm-hmm. It's the same structures of organization as we've seen over and over and over again with drug cartels. Mm-hmm. That they, they just protected themselves better. And we allow it because they're fucking white men. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, ultimately, I, I don't see any other excuse for it, but that. Yeah. Yeah, the access and the privilege and everything. Yeah. Yes. So so that's number one. You asked, you know, what, what do we need to do? Number one, we need to treat them like they are the criminals that they are. We need to treat them like they've killed tens of thousands of our sons, of our daughters, of our brothers, our sisters, our mothers and fathers. We need to treat them like they've orphaned millions. We need to treat them like they've created one of the largest homeless epidemics Mm -hmm. in the history of this country. Mm We need to treat them like they've pushed more people into addiction than any other crime family in the history of the United States. So that's number one. Number two, uh, we need to start talking about how we create reparations for the failed drug policies of, uh, you know, the last half century. Mm -hmm. Um, We need to start talking about how do we demilitarize our police force which has been militarized mm-hmm. in response to the drug war. Right. How do we start to build trust back into our police force because they've been used to fight this false narrative of a drug war that has had severe ramifications on individuals of color more than anywhere else in our society. Uh, and, and really start to heal those wounds. We have to have that conversation. We have to let people out of jail who are there because of nonviolent drug crimes. Yeah. Yeah. That is uh, one of the, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's probably got to be one of the biggest steps. Uh, right now uh, is, is, uh, um, yeah, I'm just thinking like how that's how that's done. Is it one big uh, pardon? Is it? Yeah, is I, it think, I think federally, federally, we have to step up uh, because state by state, you know, there, there's been some work towards this, especially around uh, marijuana and in a lot of states. Right. Oregon has now mm-hmm. decriminalized, um, and and. You know, I think there's still a lot of work to do, and I, I need to have a better understanding of of kind of the the side impact of that law in Oregon in terms yeah. of of what it does for those who are locked up. 
Um, but we need to do this federally. It, it, right. it should not be a state by state thing because right. again, this is going to create more division uh, in our country mm-hmm. by, by doing this piecemealed state by state uh, because then individuals in the South we know are, are going to be held to a different standard than those on the coasts, um, especially the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we really need to have a, a centralized federal response to drug laws. And the DEA have been so um, ingrained in the drug war uh, that, you know, we really have to work from a perspective of what is the purpose of the DEA and, and how do we how do we start to utilize that agency in a way that that is not inherently racist right um, and, and really start to work out from there yeah but yes I, I think in a lot of ways it is I guess a, a mass pardon uh, mm. or you know it reminds me of uh, amnesty uh, in a way and mm-hmm. so yeah I, I think that's a start especially for nonviolent uh, drug crime and the other thing i'll throw in here is we do the same thing with prostitution um and sex sex work in general mm-hmm. uh, and it's time for us to to have that conversation i know you know that's a side conversation here but i think when we're having this conversation of really nonviolent um, victimless crime, uh, sex work has to be a part of that conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, because just like, just like marijuana legalization, uh, is inevitable and it's just been ridiculous that we've had this prohibition for so long. Sex work is the same way. Mm -hmm. If if two consenting adults want to exchange goods, I don't really give a shit what your goods Mm -hmm. are. Um, and I don't care if that means one of your goods is going inside somebody else's goods. <laughs> it's none of my business. Doesn't matter to me. Right. Um, but I, I think that has to be part of the conversation. It's, so, yeah, you know. it's the harm reduction model uh, applied uh, in a lot of different facets of society here, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, and one of the things people struggle with the harm reduction model, and I, I think that was the next point I was going to bring mm-hmm. up is we have to divert. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. We have to divert the the funds that we're talking about that have been dedicated to all of these things, right? The DEA, militarization of our police forces, um, keeping people locked up and in prison, that's, that is expensive. Um, the cost that goes into the, the criminal legal system from judges and lawyers, all of that. We have to start diverting those funds into uh, treatment and resources that, this, that these populations need. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm not a fan of defund the police mm-hmm. um, because of the right. language around it, right? People do right. not hear what the message actually is when you say defund right. the police. Um, so I'm not a fan of the, of the, the optics that that language right. creates. I am a fan of the idea of that diversion of mm-hmm. funds, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I do not want to abolish the police, nope. uh, but I think that we need to 
to structurally change how we look at community safety and health. Mm -hmm. uh, and the way we police right now is not the way that we right. can effectively improve the safety and health of our communities. And so we, ha we have to start looking at how does diverting those funds stop arresting those people and get them into mm -hmm. the services they need? The police don't need to be doing that, right? But right. we do need to fund the individuals who should be re responding mm -hmm. to the needs of those populations. Mm -hmm. uh, and that that's what I want to see. Mm -hmm. And not to mention what the... Uh if you want to talk about, you know, stimulating the economy, that would be a huge stimulus actually to the economy is, is, is that re reallocation effort. And also you probably actually in the end, uh, end up uh, supporting the police uh, departments even more in a sense, um, because now they're ab more able to be equipped to like address the needs of the community without force, right. Without, without um, AR 15s and, tanks and guns and uh, all the stuff that you see in Northern Ireland, right? <laughs> Back in the eighties. Um, but yeah, that, that's the thing is uh, also the, the other point, you know, kind of like what you're getting at there with, with, with Oregon is those legislative pieces, not just state by state, but now, now with uh, Joe Biden uh, and the, uh, the Democrats in the Senate and, and the house now, um, they have, there is kind of this opportune time to be looking at legislation federally, wouldn't you say, as far as addressing? Yeah, I think it is an opportune moment for the Dems to step up on this. I, I struggle believing that a government that is so divided is going to actually create movement on such a hot button issue, right? Um, and I, I don't think that Joe Biden is one that's going to, to make a lot of movement on this. I, I think he was pretty clear that he felt the defund movement really impacted the down ballot uh, Dems mm -hmm. in this election cycle. And so, I, I don't see him being somebody that's really going to step up on this issue. I, I actually think he's going to step away from this issue so, uh, in the beginning. Right. Now, I don't mean uh, necessarily defund the police uh, actions or anything like that. I, I'm talking more of the, uh, the, the drug, drug policies. Well, yeah, I, well, I guess I'm hand in your, in your, yeah. I see them as hand hand in hand. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what I was going to say. Is I, I don't think you can, I don't think you can effectively at a federal level get to addressing the drug war without addressing policing uh, in this country. Mm -hmm. uh, those things go hand in hand. the the drug the the drug war is the reason that we have uh, the police state that we have. It. It is a direct reflection of a change um, from Jim Crow to the new Jim Crow, mm -hmm. and so we we took uh, we we took that that step of um, of moving funds and efforts 
to segregate and oppress people of color overtly, um, naming it, and we hit it within a criminal justice system. Mm. Uh, and we've labeled that law and order, we've labeled that the, the war on drugs, uh, but all of that is, is the same fight that we've been fighting. And so uh, if, if we're not gonna call that out, if we're not gonna do that work alongside, um, you know, decriminalization and those kind of things, then, then it's not gonna be effective. Uh, we have to do those things together uh, because mm -hmm. they they have been built together. So we have to demantle or dismantle them. <laughs> dismantle them. I think we're both making new words on this. <laughs> uh, but we have to dismantle them together as well, in my opinion. And and I just I don't see the Dems doing that. I I see them uh, viewing that as a real kind of third rail issue right now, and. Uh, I see them, you know, wanting to focus on COVID, which is completely understandable. Mm -hmm. uh, that should be the number one issue right now. And then they're going to fall on the economy, right? Mm -hmm. And and they're going to try to push through some things that are needed, like a fifteen dollar minimum wage, which right. which will positively right. impact our right. our economy. Uh, and they're gonna they're gonna do that kind of work. I just I don't see them coming to the table with an honest. Um, revamping of our uh, health and safety. And I, I think those two things go together as well, right? Um, because one of the one of the biggest issues with the drug war is we've we've criminalized behavioral health issues, right? Mental yeah. health right. and addiction, mm -hmm. uh, our behavioral health issues and our, our healthcare system is not capable of meeting the need because we've taken the dollars that we need to actually address those issues in our communities and we've given them to the police who are wholly inept at mm -hmm. dealing with them as they should be because that's not their job. Right. Uh, so I'm not attacking uh, the thin blue line right <laughs> now. I'm just being honest. Right. That's not your job. I don't want a police officer to deal with somebody in a mental health crisis. I right. want a psychologist right. or I want somebody trained in mental health crisis management to be doing that. And in and fact, that, that, yeah, yeah, sorry. No, please. Um, and in fact, yet again, like kind of like what I just said, you know, it's actually we're, we're supporting them in that sense. We're, we're being more supportive in that um, this, we are taking this off from you we, you know, we, we value your service, but we're, you're just not qualified to be dealing with, with people in, in a, in a crisis and, and, and other sort of mental health situations. Um, so we're taking that off your plate. It, it, we're actually being, that's actually a supportive move, like you're saying there, you know, and so kind of back to the, um, whole legislative i know that we're, we're we're going to be talking about legislative uh agenda you know next week with um with our next episode um but wouldn't would you say though that the ethos or the outlook of treating people with addiction with substance use disorder um don't you feel like that's that's starting to change or has changed and that um we're we're as a society, we're being more humane. We're starting to be, become more humane. And why don't you kind of speak about that? 
Yeah, I think I think the group. health I think the healthcare community and in the larger picture, right, physical and behavioral healthcare communities uh, are starting to recognize um, the needs for folks dealing with a substance use disorder, um, and and I think because of the impact on middle class white America. Uh, that the Sackler family really brought to us. Um, I do think that most Americans are seeing addiction in a, in a new way, in a different light. Uh, I still think that there's a lot of um, kind of white supremacy built into our thoughts around addiction mm -hmm. in the sense of, you know, there's still an expectation of what success looks like for people. And that expectation is really kind of, you know, uh, two kids, white picket fence, a job, right. you know, a couple, couple car payments and, you know, you're good to go. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's pervasive in our culture, but that really is kind of what success is supposed to look like. Uh, for somebody who has an addiction. Oh, and mind you, they can't use any substances uh, along with those right. things. So where the rest of us get to go home and drink a beer at night and watch the game, uh, if you know, you don't get to do that part of it mm -hmm. uh, if you're an addict, but the rest of it you need to do uh, yeah. to be successful. So, I, you know, I think that image hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. It's still really punitive mm -hmm. uh, in the sense of, uh, at least the legislation that dictates how we provide treatment is still very punitive uh, and still really prescriptive. Absolutely. You know, there's no Absolutely. other area of healthcare where people are told how long they're going to get treatment and what kind of treatment they're going to get. And, you know, you're going to get so many days of this type of treatment and then this type of treatment and right doctors and psychologists right. and counselors get to make those decisions based on clinical right. judgment everywhere else but in substance use disorder treatment and so you know it's still really prescriptive still really based on our our kind of white american perception of what success is and those things have yeah. to change Right. Uh, for us to be successful. The purity thing, right? It's that, that Puritan sort of uh, mindset that's really been part of this country since its founding. And, you know, uh, so yeah, that's a uh, very well put, very, very well put. Um, we try and fit, fit people in those boxes when it just doesn't. That doesn't work. It doesn't and work. You know, what's sad is working in this field, one, one thing that I see on a regular basis is people that come into the field who really care about the work that they're doing. And yet they are constantly reaching for a stick. Right. Yeah. And, and, and that is what's supposed to be the motivation in addiction treatment is the stick, right? It's either, well, your probation, I'm going to tell your probation officer or, you know, I'm going to take treatment away from you. I'm going to take this life-saving medication away from you. Right. Uh, there's all these sticks that people want to use to hold people accountable. There's air quotes around that, mm -hmm. by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, and the truth is what you're doing is being punitive. Uh, 
And I just want people to be compassionate, mm-hmm. right? It, you know, mm-hmm. most of America is fat and overweight, mm-hmm. me included. Mm-hmm. And guess what? And me. When I go see the doctor, they're not beating me with a stick. Right. Right. They're not, they're not telling me, oh, I'm not going to treat you. You're still fat. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Or, or well, you know what? You. If you don't lose 10 pounds by the next time I see you, Sean, I'm taking your CPAP away. Go ahead and die in your sleep. I don't care. Or, or diabetes, right? For that right. matter. Oh, your blood sugar still high? Oh. Nope. No more uh, No more insulin. Right. Oh, you ate a donut, Levi? No. You ate oh. a donut? Sorry. No, I'm, I'm not going to prescribe the insulin anymore. Right. You eat all the donuts you want. Right. And go ahead and die. Go ahead and die and... Yeah, this is just, you know, it's not how we treat anybody anywhere else in in the healthcare system. Right. Not even mental health, right? Uh, I think some of these things were more pervasive in mental health uh, back in the the early days, Mm -hmm. right? When we were institutionalizing everyone uh, and we were giving people lobotomies and shit. but we move past that because as a society, we realize, wait a second, we have to be more compassionate for these individuals who, who by no fault of their own are in these situations. And I think that's the hardest thing with addiction treatment is people see it as a fault of that individual. You have to take the drug. So it's your fault, but they don't recognize the, the biological drive uh, that comes with addiction. They don't understand that process uh, and they don't choose, they don't want to understand it, right? It's easier to believe uh, that it doesn't exist. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's also the, you know, maybe there is this uh, also this uh, sort of psychological factor of like, Oh, if I beat you down, I put, I put me up, you know, Uh, you know the beating down sort of uh ain't that as american as apple (laughs) pie and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches but seriously right that 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 that, unfortunately i think that kind of comes with that uh like what you're saying the stick unfortunately that there is that um you know especially with people who haven't um had much experience in in or, or much education on, on addiction um, or, you know, working in the field, that sort of thing. I don't, I, I feel like there's that, oh, this person is um, using cocaine or using you know, opiates or meth or whatever. Oh, they are, you know, even though I'm not going to specifically say it, you know, I'm going to put, try and put myself up to make them, you know, you know, that that sort of mindset i think kind of still is still you know is still runs through with our yeah you know there, overall there's, mindset. A, there's a great uh video out there called pleasure unwoven and i i cannot remember uh the gentleman's name that narrates it he's a doctor and um one of his arguments towards towards this conversation is is really this idea that addiction uh, is a disease of pleasure. Uh, that's, that's the perception, right? People see drug use as pleasurable. Right. Uh, people see getting drunk as pleasurable. And so 
for the outsider, it is a disease of pleasure. And uh, his argument really was that most of the stigma, discrimination, oppression uh, that is placed on individuals uh, who have a substance use disorder is because of the perception of pleasure in their problem, mm-hmm. uh, which I, I thought was a really good argument. Uh, he also breaks down uh, the disease concept of addiction really well right. uh, in terms of some of the bio, biological impacts on the brain and those kind of things. But uh, I, I think that's a really well laid out argument is that um, we don't we don't like the fact uh, that you're getting pleasure from this and and yet you want us to take care of you. Right. right? And so you just want to keep using and us take care of you. Well, mm, Which, not you know, exactly. And that's the thing is like w- with what I was saying and what you're saying there is, is that some of this is not conscious thought either. Some of this, is, a lot of it is subconscious and, and ingrained into our, our psyche, you know, um and like like we were saying it goes it goes back to um the way in which we address it in the first place with the war on drugs it goes all the way back to back to that you know kind of circling back mm-hmm. <laughs> um but you know some of it yeah probably it could be conscious but i think a lot of it is is it like you're saying you know there's people that come into this field or come into uh, behavioral health who want to do good uh, and, and serve their community and everything like that. But unfortunately, there is part of that that ingrained um, thought process, the writing reflex as breaking out our MI books. Here. Yeah, yeah, it is the writing <laughs> reflex. Absolutely. And, you know, I think part of it also comes from 12 step groups and the idea that that's, you know, the way the answer. Yeah. It's a way Mm -hmm. Uh, that that has worked for a lot of people and you know more power to you if that works uh for you Mm -hmm. Uh, i know a lot of people uh who have a a lot of really good recovery uh and have nothing to do with 12-step groups as well and so um it's not for everyone and you know this comes back to the idea as well of we we have to start to accept complexity in our conversations, which means we have to start allowing for complexity in the solutions that we have to problems. And what I mean by that is it's not black and white. Just because it worked for you doesn't mean it's gonna work for me. Um, And just because you believe it doesn't mean I'm gonna believe it. Um, Facts are facts, right? One plus Mm -hmm. one equals two. Mm -hmm. uh, And we don't have a right to our own facts, but uh, we're gonna believe different stuff, uh, right? And and that's okay. Uh, yeah. I, I can accept that, but we have to start having a complex conversation around a lot of these issues. We also have to recognize how intertwined so many of these issues are, right? We're talking about the drug war, uh, and, and yet one of the major themes has to be defunding the police, mm-hmm. right? Not... and. Don't hear me saying abolish the police. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like I'm going to say that every time. Yeah. The idea of shifting funds and looking at new and better ways uh, to ensure the health and safety of our communities. Yeah, we have to do that. And that's a really complex conversation. And to think that we can cram that down 
the throats of our community mm-hmm. in a year is is not acceptable right it and yet it's not acceptable not to be doing the work and 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 that's the difficult side of this right is we we cannot think that we're going to have the right solutions in a year we have to start trying things mm-hmm. now Mm-hmm. And, and that's the hard line is, you know, some people just want to completely defund the police and we'll figure it out. We're going to build the plane as we're flying. And that's not okay. That's going to create no. a different level of uncertainty. They'll create a vacuum of. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Oh. So how, how do we do that in a way that respects the people that need to be respected in this conversation? Communities of color at the top of that list, right? BIPOC communities we have to be at the top of that list so how do we respect them and at the same time recognize the need to ensure that we're doing it right and actually having a plan in our community those are complex difficult conversations that people just avoid yeah uh and and the black and white doesn't help right uh, right. And that, that's one of the problems in Seattle right now. Yeah. Is we have some, we have some pretty radical folks mm-hmm. on uh, the city council in Seattle, which is, you know, a lot of the times I just fucking love it. Um, but other times I'm like, wait, you, you cannot just, you can't just force it. Right. You have to have a plan. Yeah. Let's have a conversation. Um, it, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is, is, when we're talking about these issues as well, like you said, the black and white just won't do. Unfortunately, you know, sometimes what happens is like when we're actually, you know, thinking about these issues in a complex nature and we're saying, you know, this is what we should do with the police. About, oh, wait, you said we shouldn't defund them. Then you're with them. Well, no, that's, that's not what we're saying at all. And then you say it on the other side, like, oh, you just said defund the police. Unbelievable. Mm. Unbelievable. You you are a barbarian, you know? So it's like, it kind of goes to that, you know, where it's like, you, you know, it plays out right in front of us. Just that example right there, you know? Yeah. There's, there's a a true feeling of a double-edged sword Mm -hmm. Um, in this whole thing, because no matter, no matter where you turn, no matter what, what part of the argument you you want to try to rationally talk through if if you are not radically opposed or radically in support of mm-hmm. then you are part of the problem right uh and you know i just want to be really clear i i am radically opposed to racism mm-hmm. we all I, <laughs> I, I, that's not hard to do and it shouldn't have and, to be a debate. <laughs> no, it should not. And I radically support the health and safety of my community. Right. Right. But right. Th- that does not mean right. that I that I shouldn't be part of the conversation, nor right. does it mean that slowing down, and I'm not saying stopping, right, but accepting that not everything can happen immediately Mm -hmm. and i think that's the hardest part for folks that that truly kind of fall towards the radical sides of these things is is they want it to happen now 
do it my way right, right now. now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, bureaucracy doesn't allow for our, right now. Our, rep- our democratic process doesn't. Right. It's not supposed what, to. Right. I think that's what we see, though, is is this radicalization is that people just, you know, put so much faith in one person to just bust down this democratic process, as we, you know, can note a million times over the last four years, mm-hmm. uh, five years. Um, so I think, there, you know, and that's what you see a lot with with strong men of the past, too, is that people just are just tired of the of this democratic process like ah oh, it you know it's it just takes too long it's too, you know so let's just have someone who just bust it down and just think for us yeah um, and how you know how sick is that and how how anti-american yeah right because our forefathers created what they all referred to as the most deliberative body in the world Mm -hmm. and that was their idea of the senate right that Mm -hmm. is what the senate was meant to be that's what the senate has claimed to be um for the history of this country it's the most deliberative body in the world and and that does not come with expediency that comes with slow thought and conversation Mm-hmm. and uh, investigation mm-hmm. and agreement on fact right not hyperbole mm-hmm. not rhetoric but fact finding the facts Objection. and basing decisions on right. yeah right. on on those facts right um, undeniable truths right. yep so before we go uh, run a little short on time, but um, I thought I'd bring up actually a, a guy that you and I have met and uh, the book that he wrote, Chasing the Scream by Johan Hari. And I think I love you, Johan. <laughs> you ever hear this? <laughs> um, I think that it's a good read uh, in the subject that we're talking about, especially in the latter half here. Um, in his, you know, he kind of highlights the importance of community the importance of um, being connected to others and loving one another. And that's just, this is just a simplistic uh, overview of it. Um, but he, he really, uh, really um, does some very good in, in investigative journalism and really brings up a lot of different points um, to support his argument and which I wholeheartedly believe um, to be the truth in addressing this issue. Yeah, I you know I've read uh, many books on this topic, and and I absolutely agree that uh, if, if you want a a great read, uh, number one, because a lot of times uh, this topic can be pretty dry when you're looking at it academically. Uh, Johan did just a, an amazing job of making it real, uh, bringing fact. Uh, to the table, uh, being deliberative uh, in his argument uh, and taking the time uh, to really look through that process. Uh, yeah, chasing the stream, his scream is uh, absolutely worth a read uh, and, and focuses totally on this on this argument. And lost connections as well, which is- Yeah, lost connections, different. it is a little bit different, but I think it, it really is 
it's really kind of you know episode two if you will yes. in terms yes. of he he creates the foundation uh with a with an amazingly well-written book chasing the scream uh and then lost connections i feel really comes in behind that book and talks about mm-hmm. uh, the need for all of us to have uh connection right to really feel a part of something um and and i think his look at kind of the deterioration of our social lives um is is just uh uh, fantastic and yeah in that so um where chasing the scream definitely fits uh the topic of the drug war uh, i think both of those are must reads personally yes um yeah chasing the scream and lost connections by yoan hari um great reads especially with what we talked about today um so we'll wrap up wrap down what's your big plans for the next week here sean before we do our next episode uh you know it's another week for me so go to work take <laughs> care of my children um maybe celebrate a little bit um on the 20th <laughs> uh, to say that we are we're moving into what i hope is a little bit more uh, of a traditional american presidency um and you know that doesn't generate a ton of excitement for me um aside from the fact that it means that we're moving away from uh, what i think is one of uh, the closest episodes of american history of going to uh, a fascist totalitarian dictatorship uh, and so uh, it is comforting to feel like we're moving away from that yeah yes and about the same for me uh, i've been reading this book it's it's called strong strong men i think that's what it's called <laughs> i don't have it in front of me but it's I, i'll have it for you next week but um it's kind of the history of, of strongmen how they took take power and they um the author has different um uh, points of study and different uh examples like pinochet and of course donald trump <laughs> hitler and you know mussolini all these uh, uh Gaddafi. um so just different examples actually throughout the world um and how they all kind of have a similar process of how they take power um usually and the examples that she she uses is usually democratically elected um so i find that to be interesting and and really i get some uh you know like you said celebrate a little bit on the on the 20th and then probably take a day trip somewhere with my wife and just kind of get out stretch the legs and kind of escape for a little bit you know the madness of the world because we all need that we all need that self-care we do yeah as you talk about strongman i've been watching uh the star wars movies with uh my youngest and uh you know and i I think it's in episode three um when they when they vote to give the supreme chancellor Chancellor, uh control um one of the lines is so this is how democracy dies yeah thunderous applause um and in in some ways 
I looked at that vote last week mm -hmm. uh, of, you know, uh, like 80 some percent of the Republican Party voting to overturn the will of the people. Um, and it, it felt eerily similar to that uh, in the yes. sense of we will just we'll just hand over our democracy. We'll mm -hmm. just hand it to you with no evidence mm -hmm. um, with our courts and in our state governments having ratified this election. We'll just hand it to you, Mr. Mm -hmm. Trump. Here you go. Uh, enjoy being uh, a dictator. Like what the yeah. what? what the what like yeah. oh anyway yep where you stand on that precipice we stand on that that uh, crossroad and what um right now we stand on that crossroad what can i say uh yeah so next week we'll be talking about a little bit of legislative uh predictions or or what um what not over the next two years um what that means for the 2022 races and maybe even ultimately 2024 Hopefully it's not super boring, but <laughs> I think it will be good. I think you, you know, we'll have some lively discussion on that. Yeah. Uh, I think there's some, there's some great conversation to be had. Yeah. Yeah. I, even if it's a boring subject for people, we'll, we'll make it interesting. Right. <laughs> I won't break out my law book or anything. <laughs> yeah. I, I see a, a, a drinking game starting with this podcast. Every time, every time Sean says, fuck, <laughs> take a drink anytime i say um yes yep. or literally or literally huh yeah, yeah. we're making up the rules as we go <laughs> so well join us next time i hope you all have a great week a great everything may peace joy and love be with you all i'm levon that was sean see you later next time Hey everyone, thank you for listening to the show. Really hope you enjoyed. If you want to send us any uh, listener feedback or anything like that, you can send it to trickleuppoliticsshow at gmail.com. That is trickleuppoliticsshow at gmail.com. Again, thank you so much for listening. You're awesome.